The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we acknowledge your majesty, your supreme reign and control over all of the world and over all of our lives. We have prayed and sung and spoken today already of your your reign, your goodness, how you save and how you protect and how you build up and how you provide. And we say, that that's you. Thank you. Blessed be the name of the Lord for this kind of, of power compassionately bent towards your world and towards your people. And this morning in this passage before us, we're going to consider some of what you say, some of your, your power, some of your sovereign will, some of what you say about salvation and our need for it and your call of us to it. And Lord, as we hear this, some of us, we've read it beforehand, and, and I've read it beforehand and have considered it. And some of us, we've, we've read this and we see it, and we see in it, uh, there's some parts that are stiff in it, that are, that are tough. So I pray, Lord, that you would graciously draw near and enable us to see sovereignty and to see things that might be hard and to see them as also sweet. They are, not, they are not less than difficult and challenging, but they are also, more than that, they are also contained in them is something sweet, a hope. So Father, I think this morning probably we, we will see clearly the difficulty, but I pray what I'm asking you for now is that you would sovereignly intervene here in the lives of us in this room and maybe others elsewhere, that you would, you would move in in power and open our eyes to see the sweet, to see sovereign sweetness and not just sovereign power, sovereign reign, sovereign even judgment. Show us a, a sweetness and a hope. That's here too. Let us see it. Open our eyes and cause us to see it. Spirit of God, will you please control this room now, control this time, my words and our listening, that what is true would, would come out and would be grasped and seen and, and the, the great importance of it would be grasped and seen and the hope offered in it also grasped, seen, and then embraced. Would you cause what comes from this morning to be worship? That is, as was said earlier, that is the, the point of our good works. It is the point of your work, worship. That you would be glorified and that we would experience the delight of the worship of a God like you. The only one who is majestic and good, amazing. 
Open our eyes and cause us to see. Press into us truth and hope and cause us to embrace it and to worship you over it. Help my words to be clear. Help our listening to be clear. Make the truth known. Open our eyes. Exalt Jesus and build your church, please. It is in his name, in the name of Jesus, the Lord, the King, that we pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 13, where, as I just prayed, Jesus' teaching continues to lay before the listener some, some difficult truth. He's already spoken several times about topics that the world usually prefers to avoid, such as, particularly, judgment from God, the need for all alike to repent, that is, to turn in heart, in heart allegiance, from allegiance to self and one's own way, to repent means to turn, to turn to allegiance in the heart to Jesus in his way particularly to turn from trusting what I think would make me right before God to turn to what Jesus has done to make me right before God. He has called all, warned all, that we must repent or perish. That's a hard word from Jesus, but that's what he taught. And again, I say, I try to point out clearly that he's the one teaching it. All these difficult things here now, we see Jesus is the one teaching them. And then last week we saw that he exerted his authority. He, he showed it and he, he, dis, he acted it out, his authority, his, his power, in this case, to heal on the Sabbath. And once again in doing that, he confronts the norms of the world. And he once again then leveled the accusation of hypocrite against those who oppose him. He said that word several times recently, and it, it is not a complimentary word. But he keeps saying it because he's, he's trying to point out in his listeners that the problem here, that the resistance to me, to Jesus, comes not from an evidence issue, not, not from a fact problem, but it comes from the heart. The world says, here's the heart of the hypocrisy claim, that the world says that it, that it wants to follow God, that it loves God, and that it will just... Look at the evidence and follow it wherever it leads. But he says, that's not actually the case because here's the evidence. Watch me heal this woman and cast out a demon and then watch yourselves oppose me. That's not an evidence problem. That's a heart problem. He confronts the world with that also. So he's, he's laying hard truths out there and he's, and he's kind of poking at the world and confronting people and, so there's, there's a hard, and, big, big and, underline and, and he also makes this very clear. The nature of God. God is not eager that we perish. He is not eager to judge and condemn. It is not his delight to confront people in their hypocrisy and to to convict them of it and then to destroy them. Not at all. Rather, the Bible says repeatedly, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. But in, in, in each of these sections where he, he lays out something hard, he's also laying out something sweet and good about the character of God, as we saw a couple weeks ago. The patient mercy of God, shown in the story of the barren tree. 
He is patient, patient, patient. And is a merciful patient. He's not, not required to be, but he is patient. And last week, in healing this woman, we see power that is used for compassion. This is the character of God. Is, is he laying out hard things? Absolutely, yes. He's calling the world out. And right alongside of he's laying out next to the hard things a hope. This is the character of God. God who is merciful and patient, powerful and compassionate. So there is, there is always, in these sections here, there is clearly hard stuff and there is clearly hope mixed together, laid right there together. And because of that, we, we can and, and are supposed to read these things and, and be stopped by them, but not, we should not be then put off by them. We should be stopped by them and say, hmm, and then see the hope and engage. And that, that's again today in the passage we're going to look at. Hard and hope, stuck together, not to send us away, but to stop us and then make us engage with it. To listen to what Jesus says and to respond. There's hard and there is hope here, the consistent theme throughout all this section. Let me read verses 22 to 30, and then I'll draw two observations that clarify Jesus' teaching and show us this hard and this hope. This is Luke 13 beginning in verse 22 through verse 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then he will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. People will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some are first who will be last. It's the passage in Luke 13. Two observations. Here's the first one. There is a way into the kingdom of God, but it is a narrow one. There is a way into the kingdom of God, but it is a narrow one. He's traveling on towards Jerusalem. This whole section you remember is him on the way to Jerusalem and on the way to the cross. As he's teaching, evidently somewhere, somebody tracking with what they were hearing him say about judgment raises the question about those who will be saved. That is, saved out from judgment in hell, saved into the kingdom of God. We often call it heaven for short, but kingdom of God is a term used in the Bible often. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. He asks about the number of those who will be saved. How many, Lord? Is it going to be few? And Jesus answers, but his answer is not exactly an answer to that question. He doesn't talk about 
the number of the people who get in, but rather about the way in, the way into the kingdom of God. We talk about the kingdom of God here because heaven sometimes in our minds is a little bit foggy and not extremely clear. When we look at the kingdom as it's presented here and think about, this is what they, are, they know they are headed towards, the kingdom, the kingdom that will come. The picture, if we develop it and understand it, we realize down further he pictures it here in this passage as often in the Bible, as a great feast, a great party held in in maybe like a mansion or a large hall. And it's depicted as a feast because so often feasts were the most delightful of human events in that day. At a feast, you get personal communion. You get fellowship between people and fellowship with the host, the one who's throwing the party, who's, who's... hosting this great feast. And it would be a time of pleasure and and joy and peace and hope and rest all in, in an environment of abundance with plenty of time to enjoy it all. So what you, what you have there at a feast is wholeness of relationship and provision of everything that you could want. You get the ceasing of work, so you have no stress. You, you kind of have, you're kind of like on vacation, so to speak. There's, there's nothing to worry about. There's no threat. There's no fear. And who you are with is, is enjoyable, and what you're doing is, is exciting and, and pleasurable, and it would go on. Feasts back then would go on for days, sometimes a week, all in a row, day after day after day after day. There's no fear there, but just delight happy and content celebration. That's a feast. And as such, then, every feast back then, every feast throughout the calendar year is is pointing towards the great promised feast. You could put that in capital letters, the great promised feast. The communal peace and joy of the kingdom of God. Where redeemed people, if you track the parallels, redeemed people sit down with each other in the presence of the host, God himself, and enjoy his bounty, his abundance. They enjoy it with each other, and they enjoy it at rest, without stress, without threat, without fear. And as, as at any party, half the enjoyment is that the people you're hanging out with are delightful. And they're the people that we hang out with, the redeemed, and particularly the host. As we commune with him, this is what we were made for, to commune with this one who made us and made us in a certain way so that all about him that is beautiful and all about him that is powerful and all about him that is pure and good and holy and wise and kind, it all comes from him and we encounter it and see it and savor it in our minds and hearts and delight in that relationship there seated at table with him, so to speak. We were made to engage with God like this and to commune with him. And we would look at that in that environment, free from all stresses, and we would say, look at all the marvelous things that he has done, and look how marvelous he is. He made a kingdom like this. Look. Behold the glory of God. 
And behold the grace of God that he made a kingdom like this and then he made a way to come into a kingdom like this. To get in and then recline at the table. There's a way in. And to get in, you have to come through the door. There's a door in the building. But only one. And it's a narrow door. Verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. No other way in exists. Nothing else works. For many, I tell you, there's that phrase, we see this over and over again, where Jesus pulls out that phrase that underlines his authority. I'm God and I tell you. Many, I tell you, will try to get in and they will not be able to. They will seek to enter and will fail. Only the narrow door leads into the feast. Only the narrow door leads into life in the kingdom. Lots of other ways will be tried. Lots of people will look at this narrow door with some degree of indifference or maybe even offense and carelessness and they won't go up to it and walk in it and then they will be stuck outside. They won't get in. So the word picture is clear enough. Feast in a building, door, you don't get in. But what's he trying to communicate here exactly? You can see a little more of it if we look at how he presents this interaction in the following verses. We need to understand what he's saying in this context first before we carry it over to our context because there's some uniquenesses to his particular context there. His, his audience is coming from somewhere. His audience is Jewish, ethnically Jewish. And there certainly is a context here. He's headed towards Jerusalem, we're told. And in the very next passage, he's going to talk about his lament in Jerusalem as he looks at his rejection that he faces there. So he, he has a context where he's saying something about, about ethnic Jewishness. They would, they would get that. They would understand his, at least his opening lines here. Is he's talking about entering into a feast. They'd understand the kingdom of God. We've already talked about it. They, it was foretold to their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then carried forward in the prophets. This is what God is going to bring to his people. So the expectation is, bring to his people, comma, that is, to me. So they get all that. They're expecting it to come when Messiah the king comes to bring in this kingdom. Christ, Messiah, it's the same word. They're, they're hearing all that, and yet then he clarifies something in a shocking way. Verse 28, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great patriarchs and the prophets, they are going to be in the feast. Uh-huh. They're going to be in the feast, the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be cast out. Ooh. What? That's shocking. Doubly shocking because, if you kind of keep the image, they're not let in, but they get to look through the window and they see in there Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the, the patriarchs, our people. They see them in there. And who's at the table yucking it up with Father Abraham? People from north, south, east, and west. The nations, outsiders, Gentiles. They're in there with Father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets. Isaiah and company are there. And I'm out here. What? 
and some who were last to be first and the first last. What is he saying to them? He's saying that ethnic connection means nothing. You, you have this idea that being ethnically related to these fathers gets you in. Like it's, it's like a free pass. Or maybe it's you, have a, you get in the back door, you got a stage pass. No. You're out. And some who are last, you think that the Gentiles are way down the road there. Some, some not all, some of them are up here. And some, not all, some of you are back there. There is no ethnic ordering to this. The kingdom of God does not give you a free pass because of your ethnicity or your heritage. Nor can you get in because of physical proximity or familiarity with Jesus in, in some way. These are the people who then will say, you taught in our streets and we sat at table with you before. How many times has Jesus been invited to meals? We've seen it over and over again. We know you. We were there. We were, with the massive crowds, that was us. You ate in my house. I served you dinner. Physical proximity, familiarity. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of what you're about. I listened to you teach. We heard you and we marveled at you and, and cheered you and followed you the next town or the next town. And he's going to say, verse 27, I tell you, I tell you, there it is again, I do not know where you come from which is an old way of saying, we are not acquainted. Who are you? Who am I? You sat at my table. I don't know you. We are not familiar with each other. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. That's a strong underline. Workers of evil. Many will seek to enter based on the argument that, hey, I've been around you, Jesus. I know a lot about you. I've heard so much. I've seen so much. And Jesus will say, but they can't get in on that ground either. I don't know you. And also, furthermore, it is not sufficient to eventually in your own time Strive up to enter by that narrow door eventually in your own time. Verse 25, some will in fact eventually stand at the proper door and seek to enter by it, right? That's how he presents it. They are now at the right door, seeking to enter in, knocking. And his answer is, I'm not going to open the door. It's too late. You can't come to the right door eventually in your own time. It, it, it's eventually too late. And you can't come in because of the basis of familiarity and, and, and understanding and proximity. I was around it and I knew it and I heard it. And you can't come in because your heritage or your bloodline or, or your father's, mother's, brother's cousin was. They miss the kingdom and are cast out because they did not strive to enter by the narrow door in time. Now, as I said, this conversation has 
a, a unique application in that time, in that place, to those particular listeners, the people who had actually been on the street corner with him, people who were ethnically Jewish. And we, we see what he's saying there to them, and we might say, well, I'm not ethnically Jewish, and I've never wondered about that question, and I, I would never offer the argument that we ate dinner before, because we didn't. So not relevant. No. There is a message to them about that Jesus is trying to make extremely clear about the inclusion of Gentiles and about don't, don't rely on your Jewish heritage. That's there, but that's not really a question we ask. So what comes over to us? Well, the same principles there. Many people today, maybe you yourself, have grown up around Jesus. Not physically, but you've grown up around Jesus. Grown up around the church or, or in some sort of, if not this particular church, some sort of Jesus teaching church or some sort of church or some sort of religious entity that calls itself perhaps Christian or about Jesus And then have some level of affirmation for that. Some level of agreement. I mean, many people in the world think, like me, when I, when I went to college, I filled out my application, and there was some box on there about your religious background, and I looked at the choices. Not Jewish, not Muslim, not Hindu, not Buddhist, not atheist, Christian. Oh, that's me. Jink. Many people think like that. Of the options, that one's me. Because I've grown up around this and I've never actually overtly rejected it, thrown it away and said, no, that's all wrong and false. Grown up in the church or maybe in something that is churchish, maybe not actually in the church, but around churchishness. And you've heard a lot of things, and you've seen he's a great miracle worker. Sure, he's the son of God. He's the savior. He's awesome. I like him for what I think he is. Sure. Okay. So I'm in, right? That, that's good. I'm in, right? I'm not like those people who have no, no idea whatsoever who have overtly rejected. I'm Okay. Well, perhaps you didn't grow up around anything Christian, but you grew up in some other environment where, as far as you can tell, the basic teachings of Jesus were emphasized. Isn't that the point, in fact, to be a follower of the basic teachings of Jesus, right? I mean, to be a good person. It doesn't matter how you get there, as long as you get there. And the goal is, is to be good and helpful and to love other people. I hear Jesus say that all the time. I'm down with that. I didn't follow Jesus there, but I'm there. I'm in. I have my own different path. You Christians take the Christian path. I'll take my own path and we'll arrive at the same mountaintop. Right? There's another way in. No, there isn't. There is a single narrow door which is unlike those that the world so readily assumes will work. And I need to emphasize, even particularly emphasize this, even unlike many who grow up in the church assume will work. It is a trickier thing 
If you think about this as an 18-year-old, it's a trickier thing to actually identify, he's talking about me. I might be talking about you. I, I don't know. I'm not. But maybe this is you. Many, many, I shared this in some sermon some time back. You can, you can read books about Christians in colleges and you can find statistic after statistic that say X massive number of Christian kids lose their faith when they go to college. And none of that's true. The reality is massive numbers of kids who had been in Christian churches reveal that they were not Christians when they get to college. Maybe even reveal it to themselves. They discover it. So I'm asking you right now. Do you need to discover that right now? Is this, is this you? 18-year-old, 16-year-old, 14-year-old, 25-year-old, 30-year-old, 80-year-old? You've been around this your whole life. It's the water you swim in, the air you breathe. Is it actually you? Is he talking about you? Ask yourself. Have I actually, if you, if you get right down to it, do I think I'm coming in, that I'm okay because I'm around it? And I certainly, I don't disagree. Maybe this is talking about you. Maybe this is talking about you if you're in some other kind of religious tradition that seems to be in its past. It seems that you've been pointed towards Jesus a lot, so you certainly are with him. There is a narrow door. This may be talking about you, and maybe that becomes more clear as we look at the second point. There's only one way in, and it is narrow. The only way to get into the joy of the kingdom feast and the second point is about that way. Strive to enter by that single narrow way. Faith in Jesus crucified for sin. Faith in Jesus crucified for sin. Strive to enter by that way before it's too late. All this talk, narrow way, single narrow way. We have to acknowledge. I mean, I gotta you know, some truth in advertising here. I gotta acknowledge that I just said that way doesn't work, that way doesn't work, that way doesn't work, and maybe those are the ways that you think have worked. And all this discussion about single narrow way, that just puts off a bunch of people today. Maybe you. Because it sounds a whole lot like narrow minded. And in our society, that might be the only remaining sin. To be narrow-minded. Not inclusive. That means, of course, right, that you're bigoted, that you're prejudiced against other alternatives. And that is obviously wrong and must be rejected. Maybe that's the reaction that you have. It certainly is a reaction that, that many in the world would have when you hear about the single narrow way. Just right out of hand say, I'm done listening. Well, 
Let me ask you to listen for a second. Philosophically, isn't that position itself narrow-minded? Isn't the idea that this other idea is wrong itself narrow-minded? You're setting aside something you disagree with because you disagree with it. Philosophically, there's a little problem there. You might need to think about, I think that's a problem. But logically, more importantly, logically, narrow-mindedness holding to a single right way is sometimes demonstrably correct, isn't it? You cannot drive either on the left side of the road or on the right, whichever you choose, whenever you feel like it. You cannot say, I like to take as many of these pills as I want to and continue to drink. Never mind the prescription and the warnings. I feel like something else. That doesn't work. Sometimes, sometimes, not always, sometimes in life there is a single right, correct, necessary way to go about things in the midst of a whole bunch of other wrong ways, dangerous ways. Sometimes, sometimes in life, a single-minded, narrow-minded way is appropriate and required, and in such situations, we must be narrow. And Jesus himself, Jesus himself, is saying, this is such a situation. The way into heaven, the way into the kingdom of God is a single narrow door because, there's a reason for this, because of what keeps us out of heaven in the first place. Sin. Sin in each of us. And God's holy wrath against sin, that's the problem that keeps us out Inside, in this kingdom, at this feast, there is a massive, if you can remember the beginning of this, there's a massive, wonderful, beautiful, holy, pure, right, restful, stress-free, fear-free party, feast, life going on. And what cannot come into that is any evil. And I, in myself, you and yourself, we are evildoers. We cannot be let in. For the feast to be the feast. For the kingdom to be the kingdom. It's what keeps us out. We are lawbreakers at our core. That's the problem that keeps us out. So the only way that would work to bring us in, into that joyful, pure feast, is something that would deal with that problem. My sin. Your sin. Something's got to deal with that if I'm going to get in. And the only, the, the single solution for that is repentance to and faith in Christ crucified as payment for my sin. He's the Lamb of God that came to take away, to die and shed blood, to pay for and remove off of people sin. Like any sacrifice, he, he dies to pay for sin. Now, so far in, in the Gospel of Luke, it's not really clear how that's going to all work out. You've got to wait till the end of the story. But we are past the end of the story. We can look back and understand. He's going to go to the cross and die on the cross under the curse of God. And there's going to be a massive exchange. Here's me, a sinner. Here's you, a sinner. 
clothed in sin and unrighteous. And here is Jesus, perfectly righteous, God in the flesh, who will die on the cross under God's curse that I deserve and will then trade for all, for every single person who repents and turns to him and trusts him and says, please, he will trade and he will put onto me his righteousness and take off of me, the one who trusts him, my wretchedness, my sin. And he will pay for it. And I will come to the door of the kingdom dressed pure and holy and allowed in. This is what Jesus came to do, to be punished in the place of those who turned to him, to be shut out from the feast of joy, to be cut off from blessing, to be sent away into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth so that we would not have to be, but could instead be welcomed in into the delight of God, embraced and not shunned. So Jesus came to be and came to do and on the cross accomplished that's why the way is narrow. It is only Jesus who can do that. Only his death that can pay my penalty. Only his life that can cover me and make me righteous in God's eyes. There is no other way. There is no other hope. There is a single narrow door entered by faith. That's the message of the Bible. And that's a successful way that would deal with what keeps us out, sin and rebellion and a way that would make us new, that clothes us clean. And then as God's Spirit comes to live inside of us, changes us and makes us different and makes us new people. Bless God for such a kingdom and bless God for the creation of such a door. Do you realize it is not the case that if that door didn't exist, another one would work. If that door didn't exist, the room would not have a door. And no one would get in. God in grace made that door, that door in particular. And it is the grace of God to guard that door. This might seem ironic. This might seem kind of... It's the grace of God that it's narrow and that he's guarding it? Yeah. Because that means that what's on the other side is kept pure. That's what we were made to enjoy and to delight in. And it will not be soiled and ruined like this world was. On the other side, there will be no darkness, none at all. And so our joy will be full in that kingdom. Graciously, Christ then guards the door himself to keep out all evildoers. To keep out all evil. This is the narrow way and what's put before you then. This, this is, this is the, the call to the world. This is the call to each one of us. Strive towards the narrow door. You see that to turn away from that is madness. Why would you do that? To... To reject it is, is hard to understand. It, to call him mean or bad for making there to be only one door is blind. To demand that there be another door that suits my desires is pride. But 
It would be humble, righteous faith to surrender to God's provided Savior. To take Christ by faith onto oneself and to walk in humble faith that leads to life. Strive towards that. What does the striving mean? Does it mean like clean up my life and work towards that? No. No, no, no. It's all by faith. This exchange is, is accomplished by faith. It is, it is me and it is Christ. His death, his life. He gives his life to me. I don't clean up my life. The striving calls us to face a, a real reality, a, a strong reality. Put it another way. Press towards that door and thrust aside all that hinders and weighs you down and tempts you to stop short and rationalize it away and resist the, the, the difficulty of it. And that's going to rise up from everywhere around you and even inside of you. There's going to be all kinds of, of calling and tempting. And I'll get to that eventually. And how dare that person say there's only one way that I'm wrong? And uh, you know, I got, I, got other, I got other ideas, other options. That's going to rise up in you. Resist that. Throw it away. Cast it aside and press towards the door. That's the striving. You only, you only enter by faith, but there's going to be all kinds of stuff that you're going to have to mentally, consciously, with focus and determination say no to, to embrace Jesus. And you must embrace Jesus and do it soon because the door will close at some point when you don't expect it. That's carried here in the story too as Jesus tells it. One day the master of the house is going to get up and close the door. And then people will begin to knock. Let us in, let us in. Too late. Too late. And on the other side of the door, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be weeping, great sorrow. As then it comes home, what did I just miss? And gnashing of teeth, that's a sign of anger. That's argh. There is sorrow and anger on the outside of the door. That is a sobering and terrible reality. Weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. Hard. Single narrow door. Hard. Do you see the hope there, though? There is a kingdom. There is a door. It is open. The patient and merciful God right now is calling you to it and in compassionate power is saying, I will fix you. I will atone for you. I will make you clean. Come. Hard and hope. And the only reason you don't come, if you don't, I pray, you, I pray it's not you, but if you don't, in the end, the only reason you don't come is that you didn't want to.
Don't let that be you. The door will close one day. And on the other side is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you can see how important this is, and you can see why Jesus does not bother to discuss how many people are going to be in there. Because it doesn't matter how many people. It only matters about you. When the door closes, which side of the door are you going to be on? That's all that matters. And here it is laid in front of you. Strive to enter by that narrow door that is right now open. Open right in front of you here. Strive in and find the life of the kingdom. Repent and turn to Christ and now while the door is still open it will soon close and will be closed forever when it closes. Now, obviously, as Jesus is working through this passage, he's talking to people who are on the outside of the door. Primarily, that's his audience. And I know, I know well that many, many, many of us, who can count the numbers here, but the vast majority of us here, you are inside the door. And as I call you to think about and to examine, is that me actually? What I'm calling you to examine is not, is not and please, 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 don't beat yourself up about I don't know, how much do I believe this and how strongly do I believe it? The two paths here are trust Jesus and his crucifixion pay for my sin or other. Which one do you embrace? Which one have you trusted, not intellectually understood and, and agreed with, but which one have you trusted? Have you laid your life before him or are you leaning on something else? Those are the two things you should ask yourself and may God make it clear to you. I'm, I'm leaning on familiarity and, and my dad's brother's mother's cousin. No, trust Christ. So some of that is for us in the church too, but what do we do with this? Those of us, you, you sit there and you know, I, I, I hear that, I completely agree with it, I embrace it, I hope in it. Well, bless God for it. Bless God for it, that there is a gospel that is bringing you to such a kingdom and, and that you see it. That you see it. You found the door, but not because of anything in you. You, you did appropriately. You, you heard that and you did strive towards that door. But that is all by grace because you, when you heard this, you were moved to strive and to believe it and, and to surrender to it. You laid your life all on the table, all of you. Lay your life on the table. Take up your cross and follow me because, talk about massive demands, talk about, about narrow-minded. Give all of you everything on the table. That's what, he, that's what he said. That's what he requires. You heard that and somehow or another, at some point, you thought, that's right. And you heard, repent or perish. You heard that and you thought, that's right. I am under condemnation and I do need help. You heard that and you, and you agreed with that for some reason. That's crazy talk, but you thought, yeah, that is me. And then you saw Jesus at his death on the cross, 24 years and you thought, there's my hope. And you grasped it. Why? I'll find life there and I'll be forgiven there. 
he made that seem necessary and made it seem appropriate and made it seem like the kindness of God that it is, that Christ was sent to save you. He opened your eyes. Amazing grace. You found the door. Actually, in fact, from eternity past, he grabbed your hand and led you up to the door and moved you in. That's the grace of God. That is the grace of God. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. When you were blind, he opened your eyes. When you were dead, he brought you to life. When you were a rebel, he made you a saint. That is the grace of God. You hear this, you should bless God for it. What should come from that is worship, joyful worship. Joyful worship should color all of our lives. I think I'm, I'm becoming increasingly convinced, I heard this, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, said this like, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. And I'm becoming increasingly convinced this is true. The thing that Christians most need is assurance of their salvation. I mentioned this before. And, and right off, you, you might at one point say, well, yeah, sure, I guess I'm, I, I know I'm a Christian. But he meant, no, I mean assurance. That you would see all of that and would recognize that is me, that has fallen upon me all by the grace of God, and I am in and I'm not getting out. I'm here to feast. And that's only getting better. And that's all by the grace of this God who sent Christ to get me. And he got me and saved me. And I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. Assured of that. That's what Christians most need. I'm beginning to be convinced of that. Are you convinced of that? Do you know that's you? There is a narrow way, a single way. And by the grace of God, I passed through it and am saved. Be assured of that, Christian. See the heart in this and see the hope in this and realize that the hope has fallen on you by the grace of God. You are new. And preach that to yourself every morning until you actually believe it. That you are new. And maybe ask yourself too, have I in some ways for other people kind of given them a pass on this? Maybe, I've, I've met Christians, maybe, maybe, maybe you kind of lived in this realm over here with, that's me, absolutely for sure. And the guy in Tibet, you know, maybe there's another way. I don't know, maybe. Maybe all of Saudi Arabia will be faithful to Allah and they'll get in. My next door neighbor has her way that she walks and she's pretty good. Maybe there's another way in. I don't know. Be a little bit presumptuous and narrow-minded to say otherwise. So maybe I won't. Check yourself on that. Let's, let's, let's not try to be more kind than Jesus. Let us be as kind as Jesus. To tell people of the kingdom and of the narrow door and of the fact that it's open and that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but invites them to come and be cleansed of wickedness and to feast. 
realize, as he already said in the previous chapter, that's going to cause division in the world. In some way or another, that'll cause division in the world. Let it not be because of our attitudes. This is a hard truth that we must present and we must lay the hope alongside of it. And it must be reasoned out and explained so that it is clear. Why are you so narrow-minded? To explain why narrow-mindedness is necessary. It is necessary. To explain that, to make it clear, and to make the character of the God who's behind it clear. And to be, to be clear, it must not only be, be spoken, but it must be seen and lived out as we love our neighbors and pray for our enemies and seek to do good to this city in which he has placed us. While through us Christ makes his appeal to the city. Be reconciled through the narrow door before it's too late. We have to make that, make that clear and make it clear, layered in personal, not just, not just verbal, but in personal love and in personal grace and in personal kindness and in personal sacrifice, doing good in love to others. Humble hearts, recognizing that this is the single way that people come into the kingdom. And people need to hear that for life for the life that you found, for life that you were found for, brought into, given, blessed with, secured in. You have a life. You don't need this one. You can give this one away. Believe that, Christian, and, and bless God that he provided a kingdom and a door that he defends and bless God that he proclaims the openness of that door now that people might come in and be saved and find life. This is a good God. This is a God of, of hope and of grace, and we should rejoice in him. Let me pray. Father, this is in some ways I feel like this is heavy. And it's it is the message. And it has things that are hard in it and things that are that are beautiful in it. And we stand thankful that you reign over life and drew us in. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And Lord, maybe there are some here who are sifting through all that right now and don't know if, if they're in or don't know if they want to be in, don't know if they agree with the narrowness of this all. Would you speak? Would you work? Would you draw them in loving kindness? Would you make us winsome witnesses to the world around us, not proud or arrogant, but humble and thankful, gracious people of love, while also being clear about the way. 
Lord, forgive us where we have been either reticent or arrogant. To make us winsome and effective in your hands. To cause us to walk in joy and in rest. And would you build your kingdom? Would you continue to draw in your people? To shine light on the door and invite them in. Please do that. Please use us. Thank you for what you have done. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.